0: Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Naomi Mora describes herself as Australia's only Lebanese, lesbian, ex-Jehovah's Witness, stand-up comedian. As you would expect, with a life experience as varied and unique as that, her response to the Five of My Life challenge was fascinating, deeply shocking, but ultimately uplifting. Hey, Naomi, welcome to Five of My Life.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Nigel. So exciting.
0: I've always wanted to interview Australia's only Lebanese (laughs) lesbian ex-Jehovah Witness stand-up comic. Is it it true you're the only one?
1: I have not yet been uh, taken to task for using that, so I am assuming yes. I I, I welcome another one to join me, I have to say. I mean, it's a lonely, lonely place.
0: I've never met one with that full description before, but we have had on Five of My Life another ex-Jehovah.
1: Yes, I know. I had a listen.
0: Deborah Francis-White.
1: Correct. Yes. I mean, I'm a huge fan of hers and I got to meet her. And uh, so I was very excited, as you can imagine. But to me, that's like the upper echelons of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses uh, doing comedy and improv and everything she does just so much. Amazing podcast. So, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And, and
0: did you meet her because you were a comedian or because you were an ex-Jehovah?
1: I suppose it was more comedian. Um, that's that's what it was. I was um, exploring talking about it on stage. I had found that she had already done that. So that was great. So I listened to she She had done a series for the BBC, a radio series. And I listened to that and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And then I was um, listening to the Guilty Feminist podcast. And she also does some corporate training. So, I was kind of lucky enough to be in a position where I could be like, we need some diversity and inclusion training. And she she was able to come and do that in our uh, office. So that was amazing.
0: And you fangirled her.
1: I did. I was embarrassing, I have <laughs> to say. I mean, yeah, um, it doesn't happen often.
0: Now, find Five My Life, we uh, always start with the film. Yes. And you have chosen Steven Spielberg's uh, 1985 film adaptation of Alice Walker's 1982 Pulitzer Prize winning The Colour Purple. yes. Tell us about that.
1: Oh God, I that movie for me was the first movie I cried in, so that's what made me pick it. Firstly, I think the film itself is amazing, so it's definitely a good film. You you watched it, right?
0: Of course. Yes. Yeah.
1: And did you enjoy it?
0: Uh, I've got quite conflicted views about it. Oh. So this is the five of your life, not the five oh, of come my on. life. <laughs> all right, all right, we can pick it up. Well, because well, Spielberg, he, he did the sunny side of the book. 100%. I mean, I read the book as well. I mean, you, honestly, yes. the, the trouble you put me to, to, to the books and the films that I've had to read and watch. But yeah. <laughs> yes, but
1: you're right. The book, I think, he, he he skims over it quite a bit. I think we have to remember it was filmed in the 80s and I don't think they were ready. I think if he did it now, and he regretted it afterwards. I, I know he did talk about that. But So anyway, for me, at that time, I was brought up in a very strict religious family. Um, And not just that, my parents are Lebanese immigrants to Australia. So we had that kind of cultural, very male-dominated environment. And being a Jehovah's Witness, that whole religion is very set up where men are in power. So I guess what I saw in that film was a feeling that I could relate to, um, that feeling of almost having a kind of servant-type role in that society, uh, both in religious and, and home life. And, you know, I love Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, she was, you know, that's kind of what drew me to the film, thinking it was going to be a kind of comedy and what a, there are funny places in it. But um, the the reason I cried in it for the first time, so I was probably in my teens when I was watching it, so sort of maybe 13 or 14. I think all my friends at that time uh, were watching romantic films and crying in those, you know, like there was often a romantic reason to cry in a film. And I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find, I couldn't muster the anything. I couldn't understand romance. And as it turned out, it was because I was not drawn to men. So when that was presented to me on, <laughs> on film, I was like, I can't ever imagine feeling like that way about a man. But I just none of that, there were no words for any of that. So it was just a feeling. So this film, I, I like, you know, when you, have you ever like sobbed, like proper, like sobby in a film?
0: Uh, oh, gosh. Yes, I did once a film with Jessica Lange where, where she had oh. a lobotomy. Oh, my, oh my God. Francis, it was called. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah awful. Horrific. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, you're triggering me.
1: Okay. Well, I hope. Well, that was the idea. But um, uh, So, this film made me sob for the first time. Like, I'd watched something like a piece of art and felt that way. And it was when Sealy, who was Whoopi Goldberg character, was being separated from her sister. Netty. Nettie. Nettie. And that was very upsetting to me because at that time in my life, the person I was closest to in the world was my sister. And so the idea that I would be separated from her was the thing. And I was like, oh, my God, this is – I hadn't even thought about what it would be to be separated from her.
0: This is Lydia.
1: Lydia, that's right. In addition to that, there's all these other themes. But I don't – that was the big memory for me. But there are all these other themes. So as it turns out, Celie, Whoopi, the main character, she just has this awful life and she sort of weirdly accepted it. That this is what her life was, um, and when I think of that sort of attitude, that's my mum. You know, Celia at one point says something like, "You sort of endure this life because then you go to heaven." Now, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in heaven. They believe some people will go to heaven, but other people will live forever on earth. Just so, just
0: getting older, or, or no, like, the, the, like the, the Simpsons, they stay the same age. The, <laughs>
1: yes. Sort of, actually. I had not thought of that. It is like a cartoon. But what they think is that the world's going to end in an Armageddon, so God will destroy all the people that are not Jehovah's Witnesses, and that the Jehovah's Witnesses that are left would clean up the earth and live forever on earth, right? So that was what I had thought was going to happen at that time. And my mum lives in that state of, like, I know this life is awful, but don't worry, because we've got this future life. And when you grow up in that mindset... Just watching it on screen and watching what happens to Celie throughout that film in her life is that she suddenly goes, wait a minute, I'm praying to God, nothing's happening, nothing's helping, everything is kind of getting worse. And so over the course of the film, you see her losing her religion um, and sort of unbelieving uh, what she sort of started to believe. The book does it so much better than the film, and you probably know that, but the way it's described is kind of how I felt. So, yeah, that was the big thing. So she was losing her religion. She also falls in love with a woman in the film, also very, very lightly touched on in the film. But the feeling was enough for me to kind of go, oh, you saw her spark up um, for the first time when she just was so empty. Like, I could relate to that. But then I couldn't see a way out of that life. I couldn't see how, how I could get out of the life that I was in and onto something that would spark me up. So the women in those in that film all have these different paths that they took.
0: So how old were you when you, when you saw the film? I
1: think I was about 14, thir- 13 or 14. So, so
0: you were projecting – this is fascinating a- – your worry about being separated from Lydia, like mm. Celie was from Nettie, but yeah. but you weren't separated from her there. But but what's no. happened in your life subsequently? I mean, th- there is a sort of separation. So Correct, Yeah. Amazing. You were yeah sort of prescient.
1: I suppose, but it's very much laid out for you. So at that time, my eldest brother had left the religion, had left home, and left the religion, been kicked out by my dad. Now he was no longer a Jehovah's Witnesses and their teaching is that when someone leaves the religion if they've been baptised, you have to shun them.
0: And describe what shun means.
1: You would avoid any contact, um, but if it was someone like family you might just really, really limit it to necessary communication. But my dad is just such an extreme Person, if my brother was to see my dad, so this is like what I got to see because he left home when I was about six, so I grew up seeing.
0: So, how, lo- you lost your you lost is Yusuf, I think. Yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah oh. exactly.
1: Yeah, it was it was sad, but I don't think I realized how because when you're six, I don't know how much of a connection I had that kind of came later. Um, but it, yeah, it is sad. It's sad to have like I witnessed it. You know, my dad had this conversation with me afterwards to say, look, he's no longer my son. But he's, no. you know, so you're like, what the hell? <laughs> That's a weird conversation to have <laughs> uh <laughs> with your, yeah, like when you're that young. But I do remember it. So, yeah, I could foresee what was going to happen. If I was going to leave, you know, I knew that would mean mm. that separation. So it was very laid out. And mm. is,
0: is it true that... the <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it is—it's so shocking that, that that maybe that's my awkward response to it. That. When you finally left, your dad didn't talk to you for 20 years?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Wow. I, I mean, know. I mean, you, in, in some ways, you've got to admire the commitment. <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> he's well, sticking he's still, with it. <laughs> he's, st- he's still sticking with it. He's, I mean, it was much, much longer for my eldest brother. So, oh, obviously, he sort of dear. came in and out. But, yeah, he is uh, he's a very determined man. I mean, the best story to tell you <laughs> to explain my father is that at the age of, I think he was 31, he felt his teeth were giving him headaches. So, he was having trouble with his teeth. And so he went to the dentist. This is in Australia in the, I think it was the 60s. And he said, just take them out. All all of them? All of them. Nice. So in two sittings, I think, he had half of his teeth, top and bottom, taken out and then went back and had the other half taken out. And I think this is the key thing. He doesn't wear dentures. He hadn't worn, he tried dentures for like a year. He found them irritating. So from his early 30s until now... He has not had a tooth in his head or any dentures and he eats. I mean, there are some things he can't eat, but it's, it's horrible to watch. I mean, I got used to it, of course, but you know when other people see it for the first time, it's pretty full on. Um, so his gums are so hardened that he can, like, bite into an apple.
0: So, so when he smiles, yeah. you, you don't get the pearly whites?
1: No pearly whites, <laughs> just, like, an empty hole, like a, <laughs> oh, um, <no. laughs> I, I know. But he's got a moustache, so I think that stops it being too obvious, so it kind of covers uh, – I mean, we all have a moustache, but, um, yeah, he started it, so,
0: yeah. So, well, I mean, I don't want to speak ill of someone I haven't met, and I'm sure – you know he is gorgeous but he, uh, he's not really characterful i would very, say very
1: very full of character yes wow. he's a very difficult man i would say and that that's kind of like the reflection of someone who's like this is i don't think this is working let's rip it out it's a very symbolic of how he approaches things that he doesn't necessarily agree with he so cons- he so believes he's right and that in fact one of the things about leaving a, a kind of a, a cult like that is uh, appreciating for the first time that you don't have all the answers Mm. and that's what you know part of leaving a religion that is all encompassing is to just be able to accept actually everything I thought was right is not right and a big big thing for me was realizing I was going to die like I actually have a an expiry date uh, prior to that I thought all these things I wanted to do I could do it in the next life and when you think like that it's dangerous you know that's what leads to people willing to sacrifice their lives in wars and terrorism and all these other things, but also just sacrificing their life through procrastination Sure. <laughs> because they're thinking, I'll be happy later. I'll put up with this and then I'll, I'll get to that happy place. Once it really occurred to me that that wasn't going to happen, I, that's when I really started to try to live my life. And it's still hard. Like, it's still hard to kind of break out of it. I mean, I'm 20 years out more and it, it, there's still trails of it. It's still kind of embedded in there somewhere.
0: What of the other themes that you've touched on for the film is is Spielberg I mean he basically wrote out the gay he
1: did. theme
0: I mean I am the bloke who didn't realise that, that you know YMCA was a, was a gay song that's alright I mean honestly I didn't but know Elton John I, <laughs> I, I didn't get th- that there was any mm. lesbian scene I just thought they were friends yep. um, but, you, but obviously in the book yeah, you, you, well. you, you get it And and Spielberg, as you say, you know, regretted it, very honest, just talking about it, and say, 85, I wanted a PG-13 rating (laughs) and and a lesbian storyline, forget it. Mm. The change that I have seen in my life, I'm 57, Mm -hmm. it's astonishing. How quick? For the first three years of my life Mm. in England, it was illegal not to get married. To be you homosexual, you, you, you could get sent to jail yeah. if you said, uh, you know, like, yeah. I've got green eyes or I'm a homosexual. You go right in, into jail, you go, mate. And-
1: so in your short life, what has happened uh, is, is enormous. And I think even in my life, when I first came out, so I was like 22, I suppose, to now... I wouldn't have dreamed of coming out at school. I, no one at school was gay. Like, of course, so many people were gay and I'm still in contact with, you know, yeah. and you sort of know, but you don't know. It's just like a silent, like, acknowledgement. Yes, I get it. Uh, but nothing is told or spoken of. And now, you know, people are coming out early. They get, you know, they're taking their partners to... The, the formals. The of, yeah. and stuff like this. I mean, that just would have been unheard of. And that's, that's not that long, you know. So, so I, I
0: think about my... God oh, love them they're both gone now, my parents but it mm. would be you know auntie mary's special. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. And go. poor auntie mary just
1: lives with her best friend like for for yep. 30 years. I know they just wouldn't they wouldn't go there. I know and it's a shame for the film I think but I think the hint is okay. Like it hinted enough to me. Um, to to kind of grasp it. Spielberg did a a good job, but he just didn't go there.
0: The second choice of Find My Life is the book. Yes. And you have chosen Dear Fatty by (laughs) Dawn French in 2008, her autobiography. Um, Tell us about that, Naomi.
1: Well, I mean, I love Dawn French. I love how how she is, you know, her performances. I love what she writes like I read her fiction she started to get into that so that's what drew me to the book in the first place but at that particular period I, I went and moved to your home country so in an effort to find myself I did the netty thing from the colour purple and I just left so I left when I was 21 and I went to England I was lucky enough to have two brothers that had already left at that stage they were living in London and they were like why don't you come and work it out here and so that really saved my life I think so I I went to London and then I got into reading autobiographies at that point, but I started to read back-to-back comedians' autobiographies. And that's what led me to think maybe I should just try comedy. Like I knew I could banter and, you know, have a bit of funny exchanges with people, but I did wonder what that was going to be like. And at that point in my work life, I was training. So I was delivering training and I thought what a sort of useful skill to have to be able to control a room, to deal with people what's it called um heckling, heckling. that's it yeah because you get heckled as a trainer so it's like maybe it will help my work and it will also maybe be, be fun so um Dawn's book the way she wrote it is what I liked about it so when you read autobiographies often not always but there's like a start and you know there's like a I was born here and and I don't give a hoot about much of that information I'm not someone who's into detail I really want to hear stories and I want to understand emotions so when it gets too factual for me I sort of a little bit glaze over and when it gets into stories that's a bit more interesting for me well the way that Dawn writes her it's not it's a memoir isn't it I suppose it's not a autobiography in that sense she writes it through writing letters to people in her life and so you hear her voice And what she wants to say to people that are close to her, that just lit me up. I thought, what a great way. I only thought, I only realised this after, but the book, The Colour Purple and Dear Fatty, have exactly the same structure, which is they're just letters. So there's no story. You're just figuring it out through how they're writing letters. Um, in in the color purple, pretty much all of them are seely, seely writing letters to God first, <laughs> and then to to Nettie, and then um, Dawn French is just writing letters to all the people in her life. And I just thought it was such a beautiful way to hear how she related to people um, that she was close to. And she writes a lot of letters to her dad who had who died when she was nineteen. So it was very touching to kind of hear her memory of of him and and how that all felt for her. And
0: and tell me about your comedy performing.
1: I'm certainly amateur um, but I started off my comedy when I was in the UK and that's like there's a lot more opportunity in the UK to do comedy, and UK audiences are like pretty full on.
0: Oh, I love it. Yeah. I, it's my my favourite thing to do is go to a, the drunk second show. That, yeah, brilliant.
1: <laughs> that's it. Well, you've done it, haven't you? Have you well, only it? a little
0: bit. I mean, not yeah. not not in any way, but
1: enough to, to feel right. Yeah. Like that's yeah. So I started off doing very self deprecating comedy, a little bit about being the extra witness, but very much coming to terms. I think with being gay and also just body image issues, which was another thing about um, Dawn French's book that she talked a little bit about. is just how she uh, has managed and accepted her body because she's just pretty much, I mean, she's sort of pretty much who she is I and mean, she's just how she's got her head around loving the body that she has. And so that was a really helpful thing. So I started doing very self-deprecating thing and then I stopped for a long time and then I moved to Australia. And in the last oh gosh, I don't know, four or five years or something, I've been doing Bible based comedy on stage and that's been really fun um, for me. <laughs> I don't know um, Bible
0: based comedy? Yes. It, that's a niche, I love it. It is, right? Yeah. So I,
1: I was thinking I've got it's taken me a long time to really process the religion stuff and this was a really fun way for me to do it. So what I tend to do is use a Bible on stage and I, um, we'll go through a Bible story together just like a, a Bible story and some of them don't really need much help from me to be hilarious and some of them are stories where you just get the middle bit and you don't know the beginning or what happens after you you hear about lot's wife turning around being turned into a pillar of salt but you don't hear how they got there what happened before you don't hear what happened after and honestly it's it's sort of funny because it's horrific in places and i'm i'm clearly not reaching for the like love your neighbor um, sections and they're good, of course they are. Um, I just don't think we need necessarily a Bible to tell us those things. Um, but I'm picking out the most ridiculous bits. Of course, I have Christian friends that are fine with it. It's a little bit irreverent, but not disrespectful of people. Is, is
0: it mainly? I mean, I full disclosure, I spent three years studying the Bible. There you uh, yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, is it mainly Old Testament? Because, I mean, with the greatest of respect, that's where most of the nutty stuff is. 100%. Yeah. So
1: I would say the majority is Old Testament. But, you know, Jesus, Jesus was hungry. People don't know that Jesus was hungry one day and he killed a tree because there was no figs on there. That's pretty dramatic. You know, you don't think of Jesus as hangry. So, you know, there are some good fun bits in, in that side still. And Paul was off his nut. I mean, I haven't really even explored Paul. He is... Actually, I think he was quite detrimental to Christianity. Um, I think if we had just stopped it at Jesus, then yep. – and there are some religions that just pick out Matthew, Mark, Luke and yep. John and go, okay, that's what we're going to believe. But, but
0: even then, with the risk of getting um, um, spiritual on my yeah, audience yeah. here, it is the misunderstanding about what they are. They're not supposed to be no. historical document. They're written 60, 70 years after blah, blah, blah. Yep. And, and to take it – Literally, uh, literally. Yeah. there are 611, I think, direct contradictions in it. You, you know, Interesting. D- Dave left on Tuesday, yeah. Dave left on Monday. Well, either it's Tuesday or Monday. But, uh, absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Like, it's not a, a, of course it isn't. I think they're stories. I think if we can understand them to be stories that have morals and, you know, guide us loosely, I think that that's fine. I mean, I do feel strongly that I don't want it to show up in my secular world that I live in. Because I don't believe in those stories. I think those stories are really interesting. They're, you know, they, they've got some good and there's, there's some really horrific things that go on in it. And I just can't imagine uh, now how certain I was that everything in there was true and real and was going to happen. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses are literalists, so yeah. they do believe in it all literally.
0: If you're using your art to work through a few things, yes. I mean, that can be brilliant. I mean, A, it can be a wonderful source of of, of, of content and art and brilliance yeah. and humour. Yep. But did, did you find... It always helpful to cathartically say, "My dad didn't speak for me for twenty years. I used to be Jehovah's, you know, I, I was gay." La, la. Or, or did you sometimes go home and it and it's like trigger you because I'm telling stories about some of the less <laughs> oh. happy parts of my life?
1: For sure. I mean, there's a formula that comedy plus time. Uh, sorry, what is it? Pain plus time equals comedy. So you do need a little bit of processing. I, it is hard to watch someone who's just right in the thick of it because it's really not funny for them. Then. So for, for me, I would say I talked about things as and when I felt ready to talk about them. So right at the beginning, I didn't go into the Bible stuff because truly I had, there's a thing in when you're leaving religion called PIMO, which is physically in but mentally out. So some people stay attending church, and, but they're, they're losing their, their faith, but they continue because it's too hard to change things in their life. I was something called Pommy, which is what you are, but in a different way, which is <laughs> I was physically out, but... But sometimes mentally in. Right. So I still thought Armageddon was going to come. Mm. I just thought I was going to die at Armageddon as a gay woman. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. what I thought You're was You're not invited. <laughs> not invited, but actually I was going to kill myself anyway. So I thought, well, I may as well just live my best life until God kills me. At that point, I wasn't ready to have a go at the religion. I felt a bit protective of it. But I was happy to talk about being gay. So that's where my comedy started. And then it went into uh, much many years later when I was ready to talk about being an extra witness and, and I feel fine with that. I had mourned my dad. You know, I I, I knew he wasn't going to speak to me and I just thought, well, it's like he's dead and that's how he sees me. And I it takes time to mourn, you know, to kind of really go, okay, that person's out of your system. But he wasn't exactly someone I was close to or that, or that I felt connected to. So he wasn't that hard to... Um, I didn't miss him. Let's put it that way. I didn't miss him in my life. But I wanted it to be civil for my mum's sake, who did carry on, you know, her, her relationship with me. So that did make it a bit awkward.
0: But you are now, which I, 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 I mean, I shouldn't find it funny because yeah. it's a painful story, but you're what? now chatting to him.
1: Mate, it is hilarious. <laughs> it's not painful at all. I, you know, when there was a toilet paper shortage um, at the beginning of COVID. Where I lived, I happened to get an uh, extra um, pack. And I knew my mum was running a bit short. So I said to her, I'll, like you're, my parents, I can come around and drop some of this off to you. And that was the weirdest thing. So I I knew he was gonna be home, which n- normally I'd meet up with my mum when my dad wasn't there, but he was gonna be home. So obviously, you know, she sort of get to the door and I was just like, oh, you know, you have that sick feeling in your stomach. And I knew she was too, looking really anxious. So I, I'm at the door and then I come in with a with toilet paper and he stands up and he goes, hello. And the last time he said hello to me, I was 21. Such oh a remarkable God. story. I know. And then he just started as normal. I mean, I will tell you the first line he said to me. It is, I found it hilarious. And I'm not just saying that. It actually is very funny. But I had been in the UK. Um, I'd gone back to the UK to live on on a like a secondment. And so I came in. He said hello. And I said hello. And the first thing he said to me while he was stood up, he said... Um, I guess you didn't do much exercise while you were in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're like, mate, I'm not catching up with my personal trainer after seeing them after six weeks holiday. Like, this is like, these are the first words you want to say. Okay, mate, okay.
0: You don't it. speak to me for 20 years and he goes, you, go, and that's you it. put on weight. You're body shaming me yeah. in your
1: first Yeah. Okay, <laughs> fine, that's fine. Uh, no, it, it really was funny. I laughed out loud and it sort of, I, I guess it did break the ice in a way. But-
0: your third choice uh on on a similar theme to some of the things we've been chatting about already Naomi uh, yeah. you've chosen a song called god yeah i reckon <laughs> i know where we're going with this one uh, by tori amos I, um, 1994 from her second studio album under the pink Yeah.
1: god sometimes just come god that whole album was released uh, when I got all my P's. So I was driving for the first time on my own. I can't even tell you the freedom that I felt in that year. That was like independence. I could get around and I just I had a bomb of a Datsun 120Y, which I loved. And I drove it around and I had a cassette which was double-sided, and this would just go on rotation, her whole album on rotation. Now, bear in mind at that point, I was still in a religion and actually I was really throwing myself into the religion, so I was trying really hard to be good. And then I would just sing along. You know when you sing along to songs, like you know the lyrics, but y- you don't really know what you're saying? I heard myself singing the lyrics of that song, and the lyrics of that song are just completely eye-opening to me that that she had positioned God as a bit of a useless
0: God, sometimes you just don't come through.
1: Exactly, just a bit of a useless deity. And I had not, I couldn't muster the bravery to think of it, to think of it like that. And then, and then she says more, like she she kind of pushes it further, like maybe you need someone to like a woman to look after you. But then, then I saw him as a, a naughty child. And I just thought, what oh, yeah, you know, sometimes he's just not great. You know, I pray a lot. I've tried to pray about not being gay. Like, why has he made me gay? And then says it's wrong. I just, I just was like, this is silly. Why do that? Why do that to me? Why, why let these things happen that are so bad in the world? She allowed me to think of him that I could judge him as a person. Yes, it really shifted my thinking. I found myself singing it. I knew I shouldn't sing it. And so it felt a bit naughty, which was good. And, you know, that was really the start of me feeling like this isn't right. Something's not right about this. I don't feel comfortable.
0: Have you ever seen Book of Mormon?
1: Oh, I love Book of the Mormon. Bit,
0: I, I almost cracked a rib yeah. when, the I think it's Elder Price. Yeah. Um, he, he's enthusiastically singing along. Yeah. Hasa Digwe, Awobe, whatever. Yeah. And, and then he says, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> and they say, like, I, I don't know. Don't what. worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes,
1: but I've sung that 20 times. <laughs> it's so true, though. The things that we accept, you know, we were just... We would just accept it and not question it. this This relates to, I know your book that you've written about that kind of work-life balance thing, but I've worked in uh, corporates for many years. and I was in h r, right? It's the perfect place to put an ex-cult member. It is. I knew I was really good at my job because I swallowed, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid of an organisation. They have values? Well, everything that I was used to. And so it was very easy and it has been, and it's, this is a very fresh thing for me to think about. It's like, how, why are you so easily on board with someone who's you know telling you their vision for the future and like I just you, just, on. you just
0: swapped your cult I did it's like the addiction a swap chocolate for alcohol exactly yeah.
1: that realization is hitting me a bit hard as in I want to follow something you know and you know anything that's institutionalized needs you to believe
0: I, I've got somebody uh, I, I won't uh, name or shame but they work in an organization and the HR function is called like people matters or something yeah and it's automated <laughs> it's just perfect. You got it, the, is and they perfect. don't even <laughs> recognise that the thing that's set up to care for the human beings is not there. Is a robot.
1: That, yeah. that is the goal of many HR um, organisations: <laughs> get, get away from people. Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs>
0: Now, you have chosen, you seem a very sunny, delightful, charming, appealing character, but you've Mm -hmm. chosen as your place on Five of My Life, Waverly Cemetery, full of 86,000 dead people. Um, Explain yourself.
1: Ah, well, because I really love the idea of death Mm -hmm. in in the context of what we said before. The the meaning of that place for me changed, right? So at the very beginning, I spent a long time wishing I was dead, thinking about it a lot, because I just thought it would be rest. Now, Jehovah's witnesses don't believe in um, necessarily that you go heaven or hell. They believe some people will go to heaven. They don't believe in a hell. So, my understanding of what death was my whole life was just non-existence, which is what I was before I was born. So, I don't remember that. There was no pain. It was just not being around anymore. And I quite liked <laughs> that idea. Mm. When you're very in that mode, I think I was very depressed. I felt so... Relieved by that idea that I would I would fantasize about it. Did, so
0: did you ever? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, did you ever, ever no, action it or no, I, I attempt I, to action it?
1: No, I never did. No. no, it was just a thing I played over and over in my head. It was just a fantasy, I think. And going to um, cemeteries ticks that box. So at that time in my life, I was there thinking. Look at all these people that are resting. The lucky bastards. It was rest. (laughs) Yes. Yes, I suppose that's exactly. But then over time what happened was I find cemeteries um, very – Stimulating for the imagination. So I do like reading what's on the, the tombstones and imagining what their life was like. Or if you see a family and they think, oh God, that person died before that person. I wonder what that was like. And do, I, do, I wonder if they met someone else after their husband died when they were young. Oh, I just go through that. I love that. That sort of story generation. So that is quite enjoyable. And, you know, the view from Waverley Cemetery is just like mad, isn't it? There that, 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 that that, that are some estate.
0: wonderful poems on, on the graves in there. And, right. Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, it, it's one of my favourite places as well. Yeah, I, cool. I, I probably have walked through it because I do a coast walk there. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, at least five thousand times. Oh so, my so god! All right. It's a very, right. so it's a very right. special place to me. Yeah. And, and I'd like to be laid to rest there. Would you? Do you know how much a grave costs in Waverly Cemetery?
1: I didn't even know they were still selling it. Well, I thought they'd take, it, take a punt. I mean, it's not five hundred dollars, is it?
0: Twenty-seven grand. Oh, shut up. Yeah, I reckon I'm going to be buried somewhere else. <laughs>
1: oh my God. But, but is that forever? And then you're just there?
0: Yeah, I mean, they don't chuck like you is that out after, after you've rotted. <laughs> and they don't they'd chuck you out because your rent's run out.
1: <laughs> uh, no, all right, fine. Um, well, yes, that is a lot. No, thanks.
0: Um, now, your fifth choice on Five My Life, mm. you have, and, and I, honestly, the work that you put me to, Niamh, I, I I've been YouTubing how oh. to crochet. Because I I didn't know the difference between crocheting and knitting, and trust me, I now do. Okay, Uh, good. Your possession is tiny crochet hearts. Yes. Tell us on 5 My Life about that.
1: Well, my mum has knitted her whole, like... Knitted, not crocheting, is different. and crocheted. She did both, you're right. Yeah. So she's always been very um, good with her hands, and my mum had left school when she was quite young and was always a um, a stay-at-home mum for us, so she was very much about making things, and honestly, we had quite a highly anxious household, so... I uh, could see that that's how she found some some calm, sort of working through um, her own way of kind of keeping um, grounded. Uh, but I never got into it. I mean, I tried, but I'm just not I, – I, I don't have the capability. But then I I guess it kind of goes full circle. When I was watching The Colour Purple, I assumed then and for a large part of the, the early part of my life that I would never love someone, you know, right. in a romantic way. I just didn't think that was going to happen because it was so many barriers to, to that. So I just accepted that I was not going to do that. And – I mean, this is all so tacky, but, you know, you have to kind of love yourself before you can can love somebody else, right? That's not tacky. That's lovely. Well, it's true though, right? And it takes a long time, I think, to get to that point, because otherwise you can be in relationships where you're not very giving. Mm. So it took me a long time to find someone who I just, like, love and who loves me back in the same way. So when we sort of early on got together. So Alex uh, is my partner. She had crochet. She's a massive knitter and crocheter. Okay. Is,
0: is she ex-Jehovah? No, yeah. she's
1: totally normal.
0: Did, this is brilliant. <laughs> did, did she have like a completely normal childhood? She had
1: a very, very, and her family are lovely and a very, very normal childhood. And like she's had to go on a steep learning curve on um, all these terms and things that we that I use. But she had crocheted for me as a, a gift because we're not big gifts, uh, givers to each other. So she had crocheted. These small love hearts. I should have brought one. Just made of yarn, and they're they're as big as my thumb. And she just did loads of them, and so I have sprinkled them throughout my life. So there's you know there's there's one in each of my bags. There's one in my passport case. Like so, no matter where I am, I some I I forget they're there, and then I'll be like, what what's that? Ah, yeah. And it does that thing of reminding me that that I'm loved, but that I love, that I'm able to love in the in the way that I didn't think was going to happen you know i just thought i would have to have this secret that was always going to be this dark horrible thing that i hated about myself you know the whole thing about homophobia being internalized oh my god i was just like this is an awful part of myself i I don't want to think about it i don't want to you know and i never imagined someone was going to be able to love me for that it's a nice little sort of surprise reminder yeah that that it's there and yeah that's quite a meaningful possession
0: i I mean what a what an amazing story and we've been We've been joking because you're a very entertaining and, and lovely person to talk to. But but this is really sad but inspiring to me. Is your If you were to compare you now, living with mm. Alex, yeah. and you then driving around listening to yes. Tor- Tori Amos thinking, I wish I was dead. True. You know, I mean, y- your life is completely different. Do, I mean, it's just wonderful. It's full of love and joy, and, it is. and you work for the cerebral palsy people. You, yeah. run, you run a cafe, you do stand up comedy, you're, yeah. you're living a full, vibrant life. You're not totally. scared, you're no. honouring your own brain. Tell me about it. Is, is Lydia still in?
1: Lydia's still in, yes. Right. So has has she got all her
0: teeth? <laughs>
1: she, she has. Okay. No, Is, they're, they're is mum's still in? in. Mum's still in. Dad's still in.
0: I mean, you, you presumably don't do family Christmases together with the whole... Well, they don't
1: celebrate Christmas. That's a whole nother... Oh. They don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrated my first birthday when I was 22 when I left. Wow. Yeah, so that, it's a religion thing where they just don't celebrate what they consider to be pagan celebrations.
0: It, it's still a bit of a schism, but you are still t- chatting to your dad about well, putting on weight and toilet paper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right, I yeah. know. Um, yes, I, so at the moment, because I live in Sydney... Yusuf lives in New Zealand and Ben lives in London. So I'm the nearest to them. Uh, Lydia lives in Newcastle. So it means uh, I probably have the most to do with my parents. Um, but ideally, they would have me return to the religion. So that's always a hope for them. My sister, I think we, as a sibling unit, we would only really deal with each other if something comes right. up. If someone's visiting they might you know we might make contact but it's very minimal um contact but i'm super close to my brother my two brothers so the three of us are Mm. you know i would say they were my closest family rather than the whole family unit and and
0: the family members that are still in do you graduate away from door knocking or is that just a part of never and and in your door knocking career Mm. did anyone ever say oh that's a good oh i've never thought of it like that can i sign up i mean Uh,
1: to me, well, no, yeah. I never converted anyone. No, I mean, because normally you, you just get absolutely. doors slammed
0: in your face, don't you? Oh, no. So, so you used to do 90 hours. Mm. Uh, uh, and so you were useless.
1: I was so bad. Isn't that so bad? <laughs>
0: Could someone stop I know, I know. sending Naya? No one up?
1: picked up on it. But I, I, that that's a reflection of uh, a lot of things. I I spend a lot of time doing. <laughs> Thank God, God I you weren't paid
0: on commission. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't saved one soul. Uh, Adored this conversation. Oh, You're thank an absolute you. Thank you for legend. Me. That there, well, it's not over yet. Oh. There is a surprise question. Oh. So, have you put on weight recently? No, joking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the answer was yes, but you could ask my dad. He'll tell you.
0: Yeah. Um, is Who would you like to hear on Five of My Life
1: next? You've picked a couple already that I ah, would have put um, forward. So, I would have said Deborah Francis White. Okay. But I was going to say Magda
0: Skubansky. Skubansky.
1: Yeah. I would love to hear her. Well, I read her book recently and. I don't know. I've got a, a soft spot for people that I feel I have stuff in common with.
0: So. The, 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 there's Potentially a bit of a female lesbian comedian theme here with your Deborah (laughs) Francis wife. Well, she's not a
1: lesbian, but uh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Everything else. Yeah, Yeah. I know, I know. Well, that's the people that I I can kind of connect with.
0: Well, well, we will give her a bell. But Mm. but Naomi, where where can people see you, by the
1: way? So I did do a story for Queer Stories. That was um, good fun. I'm doing a little bit more storytelling, I guess, now. Uh, I I don't know if it feels more appropriate as I get Mm. older. I don't know. So doing comedy a bit more, I'd I'd like to think. But I'm going to try my hand at writing might have to talk to you about that
0: a little bit well, after this. Uh, it would be a pleasure. No, thank you so much for sharing your choices on Five of My Life.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Five Of My Life, presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Our producer is Mandy Kulin. Theme music is thanks to Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholas. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please share with a friend. And if there's someone you'd like to hear take the challenge, please message us on the Five Of My Life Instagram page. I love hearing from you and appreciate all your suggestions.